You're listening to the Green Majority Podcast. Thank you so much for downloading it. This week, we have not one, but two cool guests and a bunch of news. It's going to be a great show. So if you uh, enjoy what we do, you can, uh, uh, of course, uh, send us an email, talk to us online, send us a shout out. Uh, what we'd really appreciate, if you can, is to become a Green Majority member uh, and actually uh, uh, become a member with us. The uh, donation recommendation is about uh, $5 on average, but you can put in your own amount. Uh, that's what we would uh, love. And uh, this is going to allow us to bring more specific programming options we are always working on things in the background but uh, the more time we have for this project the faster we're able to implement that so we would really appreciate you consider supporting us you can of course uh, become a member at greenmajority.ca or go to patreon which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash green majority uh, regardless you can still listen to the show and here it comes enjoy the show And welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners or our own podcast. So many uh, options. Yeah, so many options, uh, you know, take your choice. Uh, we are in the studio and we, I should identify myself, I'm Saren Kaster, I'm the host of The Green Majority. My co-host, Stefan Hossetter, is back. Welcome back, Stefan. Thank you very much. We played around a lot while you were gone. Yeah, the kids came out to play, did they? No work was done at oh, all. Well, at least, uh, at least some fun was had. <laughs> I hear <laughs> lots of fun. Uh, Rob is all, Rob and Tim are both always welcome back on the program at any time, even when you're here. Ah. Really, that's how much I like. Them. I don't know. Rob Shirky and I don't get along. <laughs> that's right, Rob. So, um, so what we're going to do a little bit? Uh, I've asked you to. I'm still playing host, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm sort of host in name only because you're you're the producer today. You've you've chosen all our content. So I'm going to introduce. I'm going to facilitate. I'm going to sarcastically chime in with comments. Uh, but it's basically your show today. So uh, just by way of a quick overview before I hand it over to you, Stefan, uh, we're going to be starting a sort of backwards backwards forwards, mm. starting at the end. If you will. <laughs> uh, we got some uh, LNG news, of course. Uh, we're talking about. Uh, environmental defenders being killed, which is a, a topic that I bumped from last week, mostly because I just wasn't in the mood. Um, uh, and it's relation to mining. So really, this is this is a theme. We were talking about some of this stuff. And I'm glad that uh, you've you've chosen uh, to return to it so we can more fully flush that out. Uh, also, a uh, very interesting conversation. Uh, I hope we make as much time for as possible, but we'll see how it goes, uh, is the continuing ongoing story of the Exxon and the court cases against the companies de- uh, being deceptive against their shareholders, uh, low flo- uh, oil prices being seen and and now broadcast to their shareholders by companies like Shell, uh, the LNG cancellation, of course, at Petronas. And starting first, I believe, is going to be the election, which is a couple of weeks old, but the election BC, which has now seen a conclusion. We're going to discuss that. I think we start there, Stephanie. Yeah, for sure. So the so the so we'll try to get through all the news. If uh, if not, we'll definitely – I'm going to make some more time uh, next week to get some because we have we have two we have two in-studio interviews uh, coming up. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get – we'll fire through this as quickly as possible uh, to, to ensure that we get at least to touch on as many things as possible. But to start, yes, uh, we've been sort of following the BC 
news. Uh, and of course, this is one of those things when which if you follow general news cycles, you'll understand most of the things that happened. Uh, you know, who runs BC is somewhat important, some might say, uh, specifically those in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, those <laughs> not that is not to say that the rest and, of us and don't those also who care about them. Oh, exactly. Yes. Uh, and and honestly, it's actually British Columbia is specifically uh, quite important in regards to many of the pipeline battles that exist within within the Canada. And so it plays an important role, actually, within really the entire climate uh, change conversation. Uh, sp- so what has occurred is that you know, for many t- for many years, the, the, the last 16 years, uh, liberals, ha- liberals have run in BC. And if you don't know, the liberals in BC are basically the conservative party uh, in that they've there's not even really a conservative party. Uh, they are, it's constantly between them and the NDP uh, with the Greens getting a couple of votes in the last election, or a couple of seats in the last election. And, and, so, and so for the last 16 years, they've had a, a pretty pro-development, pretty, uh, you know, as much as a generally little more liberal left of Canada place. You know, not only on a map are they left of Canada, there's, I think BC, generally speaking, is a little left of the tradition, uh, you know, of maybe the average Canadian. Uh, now, if some people might disagree. Uh, I'm not from British Columbia. So if you're from British Columbia and you have different opinions, let me know. Uh, but that's generally sort of where they end up. And so because of this, um, they, they've stood in a lot of, they've stood in places in a lot of important positions in regards to, in regards to different pipelines and different conversations. Um, and, and specifically speaking, the, the, um, the Kinder Morgan pipeline uh, is the one that sort of was a was a differentiator between the, the Liberal government was sort of going to begrudgingly accept it, uh, and the Greens obviously came out pretty strong against it. And so the switch in power now, Chrissy Clark lost power. Uh, the Lieutenant uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Judith Gouchon uh, invited NDP leader John Horgan to form a government, and and so they they now basically make it. Uh, it makes it a f- basically a 43-43 feet, uh, future. So 43 seats NDP, 43 seats, uh, 43 seats NDP and Greens coalition, um, and 43 seats, uh, for the, for the, for the liberals with one speaker of the house who is, who will be an NDP speaker. Um, and so the NDP basically thinks they can make this work. Uh, the, the, Liberals have basically argued that you need a whole new election, um, and we'll find out. Uh, there's a whole bunch of complicated rules. It's one of the things that we're, we're still sort of seeing out. But um, what is important is that uh, this is the first time an NDP has been – that anyone but the Liberals have been in power in the last 16 years in BC. So there's uh, a chance for some actual change, uh, and we'll see what's going up. And what was interesting sort of actual – Jump offing point from that is very shortly after the NDP took power, uh, Patronus uh, canceled. There's a the, the Malaysian oil company and gas uh, company canceled their Pacific Northwest LNG project uh, in BC. Um, and what's interesting about that is that this was something that was super supported by the by the by Christy Clark and the Liberals. This is something that they were sort of pushing and pushing and pushing, despite the fact that uh, it would have accounted for 75 to 87 percent of emissions under BC's 2050 target. Um, and so. And so that basically means like in BC had a goal to like you know reduce emissions to a certain to a certain number, and this one project would have been counting for almost all of it. Uh, and, and yet, and yet, in that that was somehow in in, in at least in the, in the in the BC Liberals' minds a perfectly reasonable expectation. Um, and that sort of begs the question: Why? It begs the question: You know, are do you did you actually believe that the rest of society can only create seventeen percent, um, uh, or uh, or are you looking at um, or not? So, well, uh, the rainbows and puppy dogs that the uh, pipeline would be shipping. 
<laughs> uh, would pay for all the other carbon reduction. Yeah, um, and it, so yeah, so it's a it was, yeah. So the LNG project uh, was was ultimately has now been canceled. And what's interesting about this question is it was immediately attacked by 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 Jason Kenney, who's running uh, for this the coalition leadership in in Alberta, uh, as if the NDP had suddenly sort of had had showed up immediately and in and in, in suddenly this entire major massive massive project was no longer reasonable. Um, and and of course that's ludicrous. You know, there's there's no part of of this that is actually attached to that uh, or. At least it's very, very unlikely that there's an attached to that. What's much more likely is that uh, t- due to the very strong connections between the BC Liberals and this project, that the Liberals are basically per- like the the the, the, uh, the the possibility here is that they asked Patronus to to uh, to back off a bit uh, before announcing this. Um, they were going to announce it before, and they were like, "Well, wait, if we're going to lose power, wait until afterwards, so we can sort of it can make it look like you know we we did something, or or you know make that make our make our political points look bad." And uh, and alternatively, the other option is that they were you know was that that they were going to do it early. Yeah, sorry. sorry. Well, and it should be noted here, and as this is being reported by uh, Press Progress, the um, uh, Patronus CEO uh, Anna Tabe, I believe it's Tabe, uh, was asked uh, if the government change of government played any role in the decision to scrap the project, and it was an unequivocal no. <laughs> uh, the uh, Pacific Northwest LNG says this has nothing to do with the new government and is looking forward to working with Jay Horgan. That's a tweet uh, by one of the reporters involved. Uh, so even like the company itself. Yes, is, is has immediately said no. This is absolute nonsense, and and we have no problem working with the new government. Yeah, and what's much more likely is that this the economics didn't make sense. Like these companies are out to make money. Like that's the the goal. Of the, that's the point of these companies. They're not they're not out to. They're not Donald Trump. They're not going to shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> just to spite you. Yes, exactly. Um, and so and so and, and and they're part of a larger sort of transition of actually seeing uh, fossil fuel companies are slowly retreating from Canada uh, due to lack of of profits. Uh, you know, we've we've been sort of slowly reporting things that are happening have been. Happening happening in the oil sands. Uh, this is another example of that. And, and of course, you know, it, it, what's important about here is to remember that whenever these things happen, uh, the conversation needs to, to is often about like, oh, look how many jobs you lost, how much money would have gone to the Canadian economy uh, that will no longer be, longer be here specifically. Um, and, it, and that's so but that's the only that what I take that as only proof that we need to find another way to get these people employed and get more money into our company. Like if you know if if we're seeing oh, like person after person after person or organization and after company after company leaving our fossil fuel market, maybe we should take that as a hint that we should also maybe consider leaving our fossil fuel dependent lifestyles, um, or at least our fossil fuel dependent economy that that tr- that uh, that Canada currently really relies on. And I think it's actually coming from one of the other articles we're going to pull today, but it's 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 irrelevant. It's a standalone point, which was you know. Other people, uh, I, I, I have to check which source it was before I say it was the Guardian. I think it was the Guardian, um, but other sources, other media sources, Stefan uh, uh, obviously listened to this show uh, because they're now also talking about the fact about how the only way out of this is to provide jobs programs for oil sector workers. So you're welcome, journalists. <laughs> you're welcome, political parties. Uh, please feel free to steal all, steal all of my ideas. <laughs> This is this is a that was a that was a that was a I've been saying this for yeah. si- that's been that's been I've been saying that for almost a year, Stefan. So uh, I I fully I'm being absolutely serious right now. I take all credit for this. I 100 uh, percent encourage our listeners to find literally the I can I'm only imagine number of people who said that before you. Uh, and so please tweet every example to me <laughs> at Stayho underscore so I can <laughs> shove this in your face next week. Um, but uh, but to move on the uh, what's interesting the the next thing here is the. Um, 
the thing about sort of when you talk about these sort of carbon differences, and you know, eighty, we can say we can throw around the number eighty-seven percent of of the twenty fifty targets, and all sorts of stuff like that, um, and 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 all these, and, and as we, we see organizations slowly moving away from fossil fuel bases and conversations here, um, it becomes more and more important to understand the, how well the companies are actually uh, probing, uh, how they're actually understanding their climate change costs. Um, and so this is another National Observer article we're pulling from about well, authorities are now probing whether Canadian businesses are hiding their climate change costs from investors. And what's interesting about this is it's in part important to realize like, this is like, you know, this is like in my mind, like a couple years ago, we had a ridiculous long video about Shell um, claim, basically saying that they would have the same amount of oil, they're pumping the same amount of oil in 2040 or 2050 uh, than they would were right now. And my response was sort of like, what investor believes this? What wh- who looking at the world believes that this is actually a reasonable expectation? Well, I'll tell you who doesn't believe it. As of today, Shell <laughs> doesn't believe it. Sees future lower oil forever. It's telling shareholders. <laughs> so, so they're okay. So they're so like a couple of years ago, they're they're trying to keep their their margins. And again, that's like that's that's low oil prices. Um, and so and so they're. But that, that that is entirely based around the sort of the idea that they're going to keep uh, they're going to keep pumping out all this oil, um, and and as we see you know decline decrease or sorry not decline <laughs> decline decrease consumption um, consumption or or demand decrease we will we expect exactly what I agree with Shell in this one very specific occasion uh, I also think oil prices will probably stay pretty low uh, as as we slowly find a way to shift you know as China does its massive shift towards electric vehicles you know as 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 we get as a lot of leapfrog technologies enter the enter the thing. Into uh, the uh, the global economy, um, we, I do not. I actively do not expect uh, expect uh, oil prices to you know get up to an extent where Canada is going to back to be having one hundred twenty dollar a barrel oil, in which it makes sense to massively expand the oil sands. I, I just the, there's no part of the world that seems to be trending that way right now, uh, and if it does, I think we're we're, we're all in dangerous scenario. And, and outside of that, well, Stefan, any smart investor knows that as soon as a new technology comes onto the market, you massively invest in the older technology. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. the that's the that's the trick. Yeah, yeah. Just double that's, down, that's, double down. That's the Donald Trump <laughs> ways ways to be. I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't even I don't even know the name. Of it. <laughs> I don't care. Um, so all of that is to say that what's happening now actually is there's is this this move towards trying to understand. Um, a bunch of different lawsuits, actually. Well, not just eight. There's some lawsuits specifically um, in San Francisco. There's some lawsuits being filed against dozens of of oil companies for for hiding knowledge of carbon pollution's impact on climate, and that's that's part of the Exxon Exxon new sort of uh, Exxon new sort of piece. But there's also a bunch of things in Garage Sale you know, in Canada. Greenpeace has asked security regulators to stop public offering for Kinder Morgan, question the company's disclosure of climate risks to investors, and and these are sort of these different things that that we're as we're what's interesting and what's maybe not known is that securities regulators uh, and these sort of these, you know, the TSX and all those other things have, have a certain number of things you have to report to them. Um, and, and, and slowly, but surely uh, this is always something Tim can speak much more clearly about, of course. Um, but slowly but surely, you're seeing a, a move towards um, not within the sort of traditional ones, but there, there are other stock exchanges that are sort of that, are, that actually were demanding other information. And there's some, right. and you can start finding other information about these sort of climate uh, things and stuff like that. And they're not exactly necessarily doing the best job of it. Um, and again, it's difficult. I'm not out here to say like understanding your climate impacts are, are, are easy, but like most, but these are massive companies that can, that should be able to figure out and understand, uh, whether, you know, what, what's happening here. Right. Well, they know exactly what they're doing. And, and I want to underline, um, sort of how much of a stress point this is. This hmm. is, this is very, very serious. Um, I mean, it really comes down to how much, 
uh, courage and a lack of corruption uh, there is at the people responsible for investigating and prox- prosecuting these crimes. But they are crimes. And, and I, I understand that maybe for some, some of the listeners may not really understand either why this is exactly a crime or the seriousness of the crime. But if you – Stefan, if I was to build a, uh, a, a uh, say a movie theater on top of an active volcano – and I asked you to invest in my movie theater and I didn't inform you that it's on top of an active volcano. That's fraud. Hmm. So this is the same thing. This is fraud. This is very, very, very serious, right? They lied to uh, sh- thousands, tens of thousands of shareholders about millions and billions of dollars of value of their company. That is very, very serious fraud. And so we're talking about major companies here potentially being litigated for tens of millions, billions of dollars, trillions of dollars. It's, and at that point, what's really interesting is that like a lot of the time, you know, they'll, they'll have the support of their shareholders to fight off, say, some court battle from Greenpeace, hmm. right? But these are the shareholders. These are the owners of their companies going after them for lying to them. So there's nobody, nobody, no, there's nobody in, a, in a red suit that's going to come swinging in and save them here except for corrupt politicians who, I might add, are under an intense microscope right now because of Donald Trump. <laughs> so this – watch this space, I guess, to, to borrow Rachel Maddow's favorite phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this will go somewhere or it will very, very notably go nowhere. Right. Uh, but either way, it's a big story. So, so this particular probe is following legal cases questioning whether companies are liable for changing for changing climate uh, as a result of their products or activities, uh, and then also or whether they are in fact misleading investors over the risks posed by climate change to their business. So there's actually two different types of legal cases here. Um, one is whether or not, say, an oil company is 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 actually liable for. Uh, uh, for 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 actually causing climate change, you know, if, and if, and so and, and what's interesting here is that there's actually a district of the Highlands near Victoria, which has sent a letter uh, last week to 20 foster companies demanding they help pay the costs of wildfires and droughts and floods. Um, and so no, that that's that's a letter. Uh, it's nowhere near a Supreme Court case. Um, but that kind of question is something that that the, that is that is being raised. You know, do these companies that are directly impacting climate change uh, are they required to uh, to pay? Uh, and that's a huge question. And if that if that that would change a ton if that's actually the case. Um, but secondly, the other one is is whether or not uh, these companies are actually misleading investors on the, on, the, on the risks posed by climate change to their business. And this is an interesting question, right? Because it's, it's one part of it to say, you know, I have a beach resort and I think I'll make money into 2100 and climate change tells us that beach resort will be will be flooded. Uh, so nice try, Miami. Um, but, uh, but it's another question of whether or not, you know, the of exactly where that line is, you know, um, it, are if you if you should reasonably expect that we actually deal with some sort of climate change, um, are you responsible for are, are oil companies responsible to explain expect their their fossil fuels to to reduce? Like is that a, is that a part of their right. does, like if I was a shareholder of these oil companies, I would be very concerned that at some point this money is not going to be there because it's, it's entirely based off a futures market. It's entirely based off the idea that they that they will consistently be pumping out the amount of oil that they have and they'll be able to pump out all the oil that they have access to, right. which is again which is the you know is what the carbon bubble is when we talk about it. This idea that these companies are massively inflated their prices uh, or their value of their, share, of, their, of their stocks by presuming that they'll get to pump out all the oil they have. And, mm-hmm. and, and so the question of when that, where we draw that line and where shareholders are comfortable with accepting that fact uh, is, is arguably the biggest question that, we, that, that sort of that faces uh, like, like climate finances. 
Yeah. And so, all right. So we're, we're, we're time for our middle break here, but I've just, cause I want to put a bow yep. on this section here. I'll make two quick comments mm-hmm. and then we'll sort of move on to other topics. Um, so my two quick comments, one of them is, uh, worth noting, just put a pin in the fact that the fact that Rex Tillerson is no longer the head of Exxon does not mean he is mm-hmm. not in any legal responsibility for any of the activities there. Mm-hmm. So potentially sitting secretary of state down goes another one. We'll mm-hmm. see. We'll see. Um, uh, I mean, he may have some influence, but again, the amount of attention and pressure that's the media attention that's hyper focused on the Trump administration right now, he may not have be, he may not have the ability uh, under this microscope to do anything about it. Point two is that's sort of the, really the difference between if I you know if there's prediction about this in my previous example, my hypothetical to you, Stefan, about the the movie theater on a volcano. Well, if there's a prediction that maybe some theory about science says that maybe the the volcano is probably inactive, but it may become active again in the future, and I don't necessarily disclose that. Well, it's just a theory. I mean, arguably, you're getting into a sort of a legal gray area. But if I tell you, not only is there not a, a there's absolutely not a volcano volcano under this uh, hotel explicitly. I don't mm-hmm. even just leave it out and tell you that there's no such thing as volcanoes <laughs> and go on a campaign for 30 years telling you that volcanoes are a hoax. That is legally liable. Volcanoes so, are we'll a hoax. <laughs> right. Yeah. I'm not going to start that campaign. Yeah. Hashtag volcanoes are hoaxes. Well, how, the earth is flat. Where is where's everything coming from? Right. Volcanoes are hoax. Busted. Uh, and with that, uh, we're going to come back in a minute. So, uh, Stefan there quickly, uh, of course, reminded me that during the intro, you may have caught it that uh, during my read in, I forgot to mention that we have not one, but two guests. So coming up at the uh, end of the show, uh, Barbara Gergovich, I think she's going to correct Grakova. me. Garkova. Garkova. <sighs> actually. I didn't, I didn't have a, any writing in front of me. So, sorry, Barbara. Who can't hear me right now. Uh, and the, and we're coming right up uh, right now after this, this very immediate break is Jillian Burt, who's going to be talking to us about a film that she's involved with called Tied to the Sea that I make a quick cameo of appearance in. Uh, We'll be uh, with that right when we get back here on The Green Majority. But first, Megan is going to tell us what we're going to listen to. And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Saren Kester, and in studio with Stefan Hostetter once again. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are joined uh, by a mutual uh, CSI colleague, actually, Jillian Burt, who's on the phone. Are you there? I am. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us uh, the, today. Um, you are the uh, uh, producer, is that correct? I forgot to confirm your your official title with this project. Uh, the writer, director, and producer. Writer, director, and producer. <laughs> wow. One of three hats. <laughs> yeah, jack of all trades. So uh, I, for disclosure purposes and also just for minor amount of bragging, of course, I was in the uh, film uh, very briefly. And, and I remember just by way of beginning that, that a conversation that we had, uh, you asked me for a comment. Uh, and I, I was able to provide uh, some time to do that. And I remember just sort of joking with you afterwards that uh, that I'd felt like I was I'd been very dark. <laughs> and uh, and then, you know if you'd want me to have a redo. And then of course when you when you said it was fine. And then we then when I saw the final uh, uh, trailer, of course I was like, oh right, this is an environment film. I fit right in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. So I guess uh, by way of uh, sort of introducing what the film is actually about, if you would sort of tell us a little bit about the film, but then uh, would uh, sort of following that theme, if you want to just tell me a little bit a bit about. Uh, what it was like to talk to all these different people and sort of the range of comments that you got on that note of that idea of sort of, you know, some people feeling dark, some people feeling hopeful. Where where are the people that you were talking to at? Yeah, definitely. So Tied to the Sea is a short independent documentary that focuses on the effects of plastics and persistent organic pollutants in the ocean. Um, and so we've compiled a bunch of stories and uh, sci- uh, research, and we've been... Um, kind of formatting it as a scientific storytelling project, um, speaking to a wide range of people from marine scientists in Australia 
to scuba diving instructors in Thailand, to coastal First Nations groups in BC. Um, and we've had a, a wide range from the sort of doomsday um, approach to serious hope for the future. And the future really comes down to our generation and bringing about change. Um, and so the, the overarching theme is that we there is time to bring about this change that's needed, um, but we have to start now. And what we're doing isn't enough, and so we really need to start putting pressure on our governments and industry leaders to really bring about these changes. And so what I'm what I'm what I'm always most interested in uh, when talking to a variety of people and or, or talking to someone who has talked to a variety of people <laughs> on a specific topic um, is that I mean the the it's you know we Stefan and I have been doing this show for quite some time uh, almost ten years in my case and uh, so I mean coming up with if <laughs> you know if someone walked up to me on the street and said tell me something terrifying about the environment I mean it's quite easy I mean it's sort of like yeah. you know you're gonna have to, <laughs> you're gonna have to be more specific yeah yeah what's uh, the time scale here what's the time scale you know give me an area like you're gonna have to give me more to work with can I tell you about the jellyfish, but I'm what, I, what I'm what I'm really interested in is 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 talk to me about because obviously I mean I would be shocked if anybody was like everything's fine and it's great. So on the end of this, folks who are offering more of a more of a uh, sort of a hopeful or an optimistic view or a more like okay you know this is a problem but it's solvable. Tell me about the types of things that they were that they were saying. Where where is some of that hope coming from? Where where are the areas where you feel like we we either can or or are making progress? Yeah, so um, on the doomsday side of things, before I go into the into the hope, um, I'm sure you know quite a bit about ocean acidification um, and how the acidity of the ocean is increasing exponentially. Um, and we're reaching a point, and if we keep going the way we are right now, um, in about 25 to 40 years, uh, the ocean won't be the ocean ecosystem won't be able to support fish, um, and so that's. That's the doomsday side of things, and that's our timeline for for action. Um, and on the other on the other hand, in terms of uh, the chemical pollution side of things, uh, we all know about PCBs and DDTs that were banned about forty years ago, um, and they still persist in the environment. Um, but we're we're taking that knowledge and we're learning, and so we're seeing bans coming up on BPA um, found in food packaging. Um, and microbeads as well. And so these action is happening and action is bringing about change, but it's about taking these lessons from the BPA and historically the PCBs and DDTs and applying them to a wider range of products that are harmful to the environment. And so on that, when it comes to like the regulation of that uh, stuff, uh, and I, I we'll come back to the to the opti- <laughs> to as much of the optimism as possible throughout. But um, on that range, I'm sort of you, you know something I've advocated for on the show before is is uh, you know the idea that how many of these things do we have to pump out and and put you know hundreds of liters scattered across from corner to corner of the earth before we. And then only to you know two years later to find out that they're that they're full of you know some lead byproduct or that they you know are an endocrine disruptor or this or that before you know we just take a more of a precautionary approach saying you need to actually prove this is safe before it's put in the environment as opposed to you know once we find out it's dangerous take it away but of course the 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 entirely accurate counter argument is, is that this would have an extremely deleterious effect on the economy at least as it's currently organized so. 
when it comes to that, based on maybe some combination, whatever you, how, however you wish to, to sort of put it, of your personal opinion and, and people you've spoken to, um, sort of what are people talking about about how to solve this as far as like a, like a regulatory or a, like a policy point of view? Do, are, are people thinking that this, we just need to sort of, you know, sh- shut down this, the way that this system works and, and get to more of like a prove it safe sort of a model? Or, or do we just continue to sort of fight after the fact? What are, what are your feelings or what are the feelings of people you spoke to? Yeah, so one of the people uh, we've spoken to is um, the toxics manager at Environmental Defense Canada. Uh, his name is Mohanad Nava, and he had some great ideas about how to go about it in a more more of a prevention standpoint. Um, and so he's currently working with uh, with the Liberal government uh, on provincial and federal levels um, to bring about a more comprehensive uh, toxins regulation plan. Um, and that uh, that involves actually um, increased testing and uh, more regulations for industry leaders before they are able to put something into the market. Because the whole, the whole approach here, um, and another scientist we spoke to, a Scottish marine biologist by the name of Dr. Howard Dryden, his, his approach is, when you're aware of a problem, you eliminate the problem. You don't wait for 20 or 30 years to quantify how bad it could have been. Mm. And so once you identify these connections that are harmful to the environment, that's when you start taking action. You don't wait to quantify it. And that's a lot, a lot of the research we're talking about in the film. Some of it hasn't been quantified yet, mm. but we're going with that message that, okay, we in the past we have waited to quantify and, the effects are still long-lasting. So we need to learn from that mistake and take a more more of a prevention standpoint. And once we eliminate these problems, then we won't have them 40 years down the road. Right. And, uh, I mean, talk about, let's, let's talk a little bit more sort of just generally as far as um, the extent of the problem. One of the, obviously, the, the clear distinctions between, you know, just generally talking about bodies of water and the ocean uh, is that, for instance, as terrible as a, say, a pipeline spill or something in a lake or, or you know, uh, forbid uh, one of the Great Lakes, uh, there is still some degree of self-contained, right? So the chemicals can leach into the into the soil. It can, it can leach into groundwater and be carried other places. But there is some degree of containment there, uh, whereas we're talking about Ocean pollution, of course, it doesn't matter who pollutes it or, or what country emits it or what company emits it. This is now the world over. And so the fragility of the ocean is sort of extreme in the sense that it's incredibly resilient right up until when it's not. Um, so um, if you can speak to that or just even speak to just the general, like, why is the ocean so important? Why should we care if, you know, there's no fish? Maybe I don't eat fish. Why should I care? Yeah, so actually... Um, one of the overarching themes of the film is the ocean is life. And that's entirely true because we come from the ocean. We rely on the ocean. Um, the ocean provides roughly 70% of the world's oxygen um, through phytoplankton and photosynthesis. And once, it, like the old adage is so true, once the ocean dies, we die. Like we literally cannot survive on this planet without a functioning marine ecosystem. Um, and the marine ecosystem is resilient and it has bounced back um, from numerous impacts, but that resiliency is decreasing rapidly. Um, and so once we understand that fundamental importance of the ocean and the reason we are here, um, we hope that that will 
inspire more uh, direct action. And I and and uh, Jillian, I obviously I've I've seen the trailer and I, and I did a short interview with you uh, for the film, but I, I I haven't seen the film. I'm I'm wondering if you got into uh, at all. Um, or just what your again, what your opinion would be, if if not, uh, as far as where is you know you talked to I know you talked to a number of experts and got a number of people who are very very interested in this topic's uh, opinion on on problems and solutions and this sorts of thing. Um, but what is your ass- assessment of sort of where the average Canadian or the average person is? Do you think people? Do you think the the public, as it were, the proverbial the public, uh, is aware of of sort of the relationship between? Uh, our ability to survive and, you know, there being a functioning ecosystem in the ocean. Do you think this is something people get and they're just, maybe there's a different problem. It's a communication issue about how much danger there is or where, why do you think this is sort of in, why did you have to make the film? I guess is my question. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think overall a lot of Canadians, especially in our generation are aware of the significance of the ocean. Um, maybe not to the extent, the life or death extent, but, uh, I think I think the biggest issue right now is we don't know how to act. Like as a generation, as a society, we're aware. Oh, pollution in the ocean is bad; um, it's harmful. We hear about the effects of um, chemicals and plastics moving up through the food chain and ending up ending up on our plate. Um, but the it's kind of a separation between knowledge and action right now. And so we created the film. We noticed a gap in information provided by other documentaries um, in the sense that they don't speak directly to our generation. Um, they, and they don't necessarily have a comprehensive action plan. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to speak to our generation directly. It's a short film um, to capture all attention spans. And it's not going to end with the film. Um, uh, we're, we have a website right now, and we're working on resources to put on the website for tangible action items that millennials and people from all generations can take in order to bring about the change individually and collectively. Excellent. Uh, Jillian, we've just got a, a minute left. I have, I have one last question for you, and then and then please, by all means, take this as your cue to mention the website where people can get more information, and et cetera, as well. Um, but you met, you brought up something there very interesting, which is sort of the, the fact that, um, that there is a different communication style or a different mode of, of, of sort of sharing information, uh, or activating people that, that you felt was being unaddressed. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what your perception of that is? What, what is, what, what are ways that people are communicating that you don't think are effective, uh, with, uh, millennials and, and what do you think that you, that you've done or you've attempted to do better that, that is more successful at this communication? Cause I know that that's something that comes up quite a lot about, you know, how do we communicate with young people? Um, but it's usually not young people having these conversations. So, <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, um, one thing that, that we noticed with like other documentaries is they speak in a broad sense about action. Um, They provide a lot of resources and knowledge, and you learn a lot from other documentaries, and then a lot of them trickle off and say, we need to bring about change, and you see things at protests and inspiring imaging. Um, But at this point, protests aren't enough. Like, they're powerful, and it's incredible, and they send a message, but there needs to be a follow-up. And so that's what we're focusing on with the resource section of the film is like I said, tangible action items that people can take in their daily lives um, that follow up on these powerful protests and 
kind of teach them how to bring this knowledge that we're providing and actually use it to bring about change. All right. Thank you very much. And can, do you want to just let people know, uh, Jillian, where they can learn more, et cetera? Uh, aside, yeah. aside from the fact that, of course, a link will be posted on, on today's show post. But uh, if you want to just do a little uh, shout out for yourself there. Yeah, definitely. So you can find out more on our website. It's tiedtothesea.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook and Instagram at Tied to the Sea. And we're also doing a crowdfunding campaign right now with lots of awesome perks, uh, Indiegogo tied to the sea. Um, so join us there. We have trailers and resources and lots of different stories to share on all those platforms. So we'd love if you would join us. And of course, the most important part of the film, uh, Jillian, is that it features me. <laughs> oh, 100%. That's why Saren is in our, our latest trailer twice. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. And of course, uh, there will, as I said, there will be links on the website as well. If you missed that, uh, you can go check that as well. Thank you so much for your time, Jillian Burt. Thank you. All right, so uh, this is the end of the second section here on The Green Majority. We're going to go to our second and final music break in a minute. Uh, I'm not going to try. Stefan, you're going to get to try uh, Barbara's last name this time. Krakalova. <laughs> She's going to come make fun of us in a second. Oh, yeah, for sure. Our friend Barbara <laughs> is going to join us in just a minute uh, as well. Uh, we have some more news. She's going to help us talk through some news. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, our wonderful community radio partners, and, of course, on our very own podcast, which comes with some special perks, including a bonus show today where I'm going to talk about uh, Anthony Scaramucci. The Mooch uh, is related to uh, a little bit of uh, society talk. We've been doing some very sort of existential, that's not the right word, but something along those lines, bonus shows recently. Um, and we will continue this conversation uh, as well coming up uh, then. I should preview that. You can check all that out at greenmajority.ca. But first, Megan, once again, will tell us what our second and final music break will be. All right, we are back in the final section here of the Green Majority. I'm going to once again more or less hand over to Stefan, uh, but because it's fun when people email us, I'm going to mention that we got an email live during the show. Uh, Hannah emailed us during the show, and she would like us to talk about Transform TO. Hannah, we are going to talk about Transform TO, but uh, Stefan's been away in a bunch of other stuff, and we just didn't get around to I, it. So I promise I will do it next week. Stefan has promised personally. Promised yes. to cover that next week. And that is also an acknowledgement that I, while I can't always read emails during the show, <laughs> uh, that you will get a response if you email us. Yes. And if you're nice, you'll get a nice response. There you go. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> uh, now, uh, uh, Stefan, this is, uh, once again, I throw the reins to you. Yes, thank you. Uh, so it's, we're in the studio with uh, Barbara Grakalova. Yes, nailed it. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I can she she nailed it 100% of the time, or we nailed it 100% of the time that she heard us try it. Today. Yes, exactly. So we're nailing it. <laughs> when she goes back, she'll be very unhappy. Um, uh, environmental lawyer based in Toronto. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Barbara. Thank you. Hi. Um, and, and so you're here to talk about uh, the recent Supreme Court decisions uh, in Clyde River and the Chippewa of the Thames uh, challenges. Yes. Uh, and, and so just sort of give us a brief primer of, of what these cases were about. Yeah. So, and I just want to clarify, I'm not here to talk about as an Aboriginal lawyer. I don't practice Aboriginal law, so I don't know all the full implications that this has for Aboriginal lawyers, but more as a you know member of the environmental community, just because these have been widely publicized cases that a lot of people are excited about. Um, so there are two separate cases, which were heard as companion cases by the Supreme Court. Um, and they have to do with significant fossil fuel projects being developed on the territories of uh, First Nations. So the Appellants are both First Nations that are challenging the process of the National Energy Board in this case um, and alleging that the Crown did not discharge its constitutional duty to consult with the affected Indigenous groups. So 
Um, what this actually means is mm-hmm. that, okay, so taking the, the Clyde River example first. So Clyde River is an Inuit community in the Arctic. There were a number of proponents that applied to the National Energy Board for permits to conduct seismic testing, which is underground yeah. Sound-based testing, um, essentially seeking oil in the Arctic. Yeah, drilling, I, I, right? yeah, I, yeah. Do you remember the Do you remember the scene from the beginning of Jurassic Park? <laughs> I've never seen Jurassic Park. Oh. I'm sorry. You're you're welcome to make fun of me, yeah. Barbara. Okay, we'll we'll talk about that later. Okay. Okay. Every, every literally everybody else knows what I'm talking. About. <laughs> sorry, everyone. Sorry, everyone. I'm sure it's a good movie. Okay, so so there a um, number of companies wanted to conduct seismic testing, and the Clyde River community um, alleged that. They didn't sufficiently consult with them, and at the end of the day, the Supreme Court agreed. Hmm. Um, the Chippewas of the Thames decision, similar situation, so it has to do with the Enbridge Line 9 reversal, um, so which is an application to reverse the flow of the part of the pipeline, also increase its capacity and enable it to ha- carry heavy crude, so sort of change what kind of uh, material it's carrying. And it would, be, it would go through the traditional territory of the Chippewas of the Thames First Nation in southwestern Ontario. Um, and in this case, the Supreme Court disagreed and said that the duty to consult was actually sufficiently discharged by the National Energy Board. Uh, thank you. And, and so this obviously ties on to uh, – like this question of duty to consult is, 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 is quite – hard to parse out you know like like you know it really clearly it's 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 a phrase that seems to mean something um but then the real question is uh you know what what leads some one project you know to be a to have met this duty to consult and one project not to have so can you sort of tell us why like what was different about these two cases and why was one you know what what did the what did the line nine project uh do that say the that the other one didn't or vice versa so what's like why the different outcome well, that, that could be a very detailed answer. And again, I welcome any Aboriginal lawyers who are listening to this to correct me on any of this. My understanding is just from reading these decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not it's really just a summary of what the Supreme Court said, not an actual critical analysis of whether they got it right. But essentially, the um, um, in the Chippewas of the Thames Line 9 uh, situation, the disruption would be really minimal. So the the impact was deemed to be not as important, right? So the, the pipeline already exists. It's just a reversal. Um, most of the co- most of the construction would happen on the um, the Enbridge's line of way, so it wouldn't really impair the the actual land. Um, there were public hearings. You should that, say no more that's already being impaired. No more. That, absolutely. Yeah. Again, I'm just paraphrasing the Supreme Court decision. So so the original was, pipeline when was, was consulted. No, no. This is a good point because they weren't consulted when the pipeline was first constructed in the 70s, right? So it's already a bit. We didn't agree for this to be here. So when you say we're just going to slightly change what's here, it's it's kind of useless to say, well, that that slight change won't affect you too much. Right. Um, and also in this case, there were public hearings that were conducted and the Chippewas um, participated as interveners. They got funding to participate in interveners. And then the NAB put in conditions that were responsive to some of their concerns. On the other hand, in the Clyde River example, so what we really have is kind of two ends of the spectrum. Um and so in the Clyde River example, the uh, the established treaty rights that would be affected would be affected severely, according to the Supreme Court. Um, actually, I don't know if that particular word is correct, but essentially um, it would be it would be on the further end of the spectrum. Right. So um, the uh, the treaty right to hunt and harvest marine mammals would be would be affected. And there was very little consultation that happened. And the Supreme Court in the decision actually lists these um, 
that one of the stories that's told through the decision is um, part of the consultation was this in-person meeting where the proponents came in and answered questions from from the communities and members of the community would ask, you know, so how exactly would um, the mammals that we hunt be affected? And essentially the response was, yeah, we don't really know. We don't have the experts here with us. We'll get back to you. And what they got back to them with was um, – roughly 4,000 odd page document that was posted on the National Energy Board website. Um, it was not translated or substantial parts of it were not translated into Nikodot, so the local people would not have a way of understanding it. And they also cited things like in the high Arctic, you maybe don't have the best internet access. So how is somebody going to go on this website, download this huge document? And, you know, um, people weren't able to download it at times because the bandwidth just doesn't allow for that. So it wasn't um, it wasn't a, a substantial consultation where right yeah cool um, and, and so what's interesting there actually is that you, you even sort of you said the word severely and then you sort of you backed it because you weren't certain if that exact word was in the phrase which Correct. I think which I think is actually important to note because I think it highlights how important language is and understanding the language within these sort of law uh, decisions um, and, and so when you say th- so and, and, and as you've mentioned with 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 the um, with the cloud river scenario the you know if you let alone, like, even if it's, you know, let alone if it wasn't translated, you know, you read some words that exist in these sort of law texts that, that you know, that if you are not a lawyer, don't actually mean anything to you. Uh, you know, so like something like like the discharge, the crown, whether the crown discharged its duty um, is, a, is a phrase that doesn't, you know, we don't go around talking about people discharging their duty day in day. That's not a conversation we're having. Well, and also, and I mean, it reminds me of sort of our science literacy conversations, too, where we're talking about what, what if they'd use the word relinquished? Well, in common parlance, those two words are interchangeable, but in a legal sense, those could have massive implications. I don't, I don't know, but that yeah. type of difference well, could exactly. have massive implications. But anyone who isn't incredibly well trained and incredibly familiar with the law isn't going to read those two words differently. But there might be a massive difference, well, and yeah. this could happen on you know any of the words in that ten billion word document. Well, and, and so, what, so as a lawyer, when I when I stumbled on that word and said, I actually don't remember if that's exactly in the case. I'm not just being being a jerk and say, sorry, I can't tell you exactly. Be, you know, I I don't know, and this requires experts to be able to understand the full implications of the decision that's yeah, that's all that exactly that, yeah exactly yeah and so to and so to dive down like so let's just briefly talk about this concept of uh, of discharging its duty what is so when, when this sort of because it is when you talk about uh about duty to, of the crown to consult with affected indigenous peoples uh and then if the crown successfully discharges duty what does that what does that actually mean yeah and this is the part of it that i think is interesting because when we talk about the crown so the crown really um, because we have a constitutional monarchy, the crown really means the government of Canada, right? And it's represented by the actual crown, as in the object. <laughs> but, uh, but really, it just means the executive power of the government, right. which when you think about it, means us, hmm. right? Because, I mean, we can talk about whether our electoral system is democratic or not, but we elected these people. And in the context of... Whether, whether or not they represent us, they are our representatives. <laughs> that is a better way of wording it. You yeah. could be a lawyer. There we go. <laughs> My mom used to tell me I should be a lawyer, but she was usually <laughs> mostly being sassy with me. When she said um, I could see that. I could see that. <laughs> so, right, we, I think this is really important. When you hear about decisions like this, right, and, you know, as environmentalists, we're concerned, and we would say, well, you know, it's a good thing that they're, this application to conduct seismic text seismic testing in the Arctic is now, you know, temporarily off the table might be 
back on the table. I'm not sure. Um, and then we get sad about fine. Well, line nine reversal. This judicial challenge didn't work out. What this really, what this really means is, how is the government acting on our behalf when they're interacting with the First Nations people? So I think, right, this concept of us all being treaty people, we need to understand that this is the government doing something on our behalf. And if we don't like it, we have a right to let them know. Yeah. There's another there's another angle on this. Sorry, do you mind if I go first? Um, there's another angle on this that I was just thinking about while you were talking, which is unfortunately going to involve me having to re- reference South Park. But it's just it's one of those go situations. So there was an, there was a South Park episode that was basically making fun of or making you know trying to br- shine some light on the issue of like uh, those like uh, uh, agreements you sign with companies that nobody ever reads. And so it was the it was an episode, and I won't go into detail because it's actually quite gross. Uh, but there was an example of basically one of the characters on this on this tv show uh signs the apple agreement and later in the episode uh, tim cook comes to him and basically says well you sign the agreement we can do anything and of course and they were they were mutilating his body they were doing things that were obviously well beyond what would be what would be understood to be like reasonable to be like okay just because you signed off on it there are things to which you can't sign off on basically mm-hmm. was the idea was you know apple can't actually put we own your kidney in their music license agreement to use itunes right so what I'm wondering, and, and where this is coming back to you, Barbara, and turning into a question and not just a, a pop culture reference, is is sort of, I, to the best of your ability, again, emphasizing this is not your area of specialty, it, to the best of your knowledge, like, isn't there some sort of, like, intention, overriding intention clause within the justice uh, system that says, okay, well, minutiae aside, this minutiae violates the larger spirit of this Declar of this agreement we have with with First Nations people, and the 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 fact that you sort of had this little line item here that was a really complicated way of saying we own all your stuff and we don't have to ask you violates the larger intended purpose of the document, and therefore we can ignore. And we, therefore, it can't be enforced. Like at some point, as an as an ignorant outside observer of the law, it seems to me that that this happens a lot. That that well, we got you because you know it turns out this can be interpreted this way, and therefore the larger overemphasizing title of what we said we were doing is is. Is it, we're actually going to do the opposite because, haha, we tricked you, or haha, we have some lawyers that can argue that it could actually be interpreted this way. You, so you're saying that you're, 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 you're saying that the Canadian government violates treaty rights consistently? That doesn't. Well, seem I don't like want to go that, that far. That doesn't seem <laughs> like Canada. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Isn't there a, isn't there a legal point well, at which someone can say this violates the intention of what the purpose of this thing is supposed to be, and therefore it doesn't matter what somebody signed? So we have the Constitution in Canada, and um, my understanding of these judicial challenges was the argument that this violates the Constitution because there wasn't sufficient consultation that happened. Um, at the constitutional level, consultation is not defined in a lot of detail. Again, this is my very rudimentary understanding of Aboriginal law. So it's through case law and through cases like this that we understand what that actually has can mean and has to mean. And I guess this this gets to the interesting point, the interesting point, one of the interesting points, one of the things about this that gets me riled up, which is that the um, This is the National Energy Board, and the Supreme Court just determined that the National Energy Board is one of the institutions that has a right a responsibility in this case to discharge the duty of the crown or, you know, our duty to consult. Um, the National Energy Board Act, which governs the National Energy Board, is currently under review. The Canadian Environmental Assessment Act, which governs federal environmental assessment processes, is currently under review, as well as three other significant environmental regulations. So there is an opportunity for all of us to get involved right now 
in the creation of the legislation that will determine how the National Energy Board will have to interact with the First Nations and what what that process looks like, right? Because it's not just like how much are we going to talk to you and how much are we going to listen. It's also are we going to give you the resources to be able to meaningfully engage? Because if you just show up on someone's land and say, hey, we're going to talk to you about this, do they have an understanding of what that means? You know, do, do they have an un- understanding of this is the process that will discharge this duty of your of us to consult with regards to your treaty rights. So we can all get engaged in how these legis- how these laws are being drafted right now. So uh, to jump sort of jump back in um – and also to to clarify that uh, that of course that, so, so here is an example like I, I made an offhand comment just there in which I implied that Canada doesn't violate treaty rights which it definitely obviously does which was the point I was trying to make in case sarcasm doesn't translate <laughs> over the radio um, uh, but uh, but to sort of put a point to that question um, or to put a question to that point uh, the. So if we so if we as Canadians are the crown, we sort of mm-hmm. you sort of establish that to some extent. You know, it, if we accept the it, often, I feel like we very much don't see ourselves as the government. We sort of see the government as a separate thing. But you know, if we are truly in a in a democracy, we are in some ways implicated in everything our government does. Um, uh, and 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 we accept and we sort of see this sort of thing of like we are unhappy about the sort of way that we are currently not you know connecting with the indigenous people and not sort of not fully honoring our treaty their treaty rights and and, and really and acting as uh, you know and, and not fully you know discharging our duty in any way or form. Um, what kind of power do we actually have? Is there how can we actually like you know there's all these options you sort of mentioned all these th- these things that are in review. Uh, is there ways? How does one get involved in those processes? Is it a, is it a, is it, a, is it a, calling your MP? Is it is it uh, is it you know finding the you know the the environmental board that that's correct to the things like how do people get involved and act on these sort of things? So there's there's a lot of ways, and I think it's important to remember this: the the judicial challenge um, litigation is a very blunt tool, right? So these are very specific cases, and something was decided, and we may like one decision and not like the other, and that's kind of the end of it. Also, these challenges are incredibly. Um, time-consuming and resource-consuming. So if anyone's in a position to donate to First Nations groups that are launching um, challenges of fossil fuel infrastructure, I would encourage people to do that. But also these um, uh, legislation reviews, I think, are very important opportunities to be involved. Um, I can post tons and tons of links that you Mm -hmm. can put in the show notes of how people can get involved. There are a number of environmental organizations that are working on this. Um, so it's even as simple as being on the mailing list of an organization, actually doing that thing when they ask you to call your MPs and say, hey, remember this thing that you're discussing in committee right now? I really care about this and I'm your constituent and I want you to pay attention. Hmm. I think that's really important. And, you know, it may not be satisfying and some people may have other ways of um, being activists and I'm not commenting on what form of activism is better than than others, but I think it's important to do all of the above, right? right. So if, if you have an opportunity to donate to an environmental organization that's working to um, change the um, change the National Energy Board Act so that the National Energy Board uh, consults with indigenous people in a significant way, or maybe, you know, act, um, try to push for uh, an adoption of the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Rights for uh, prior informed consent being a being a value that we that we enforce in Canada, that would be a better way of conducting um, consultation, in my opinion. But again, I'm not the Aboriginal lawyer. Right. right. Um, uh, uh, yeah, we will. Yeah. Unfortunately, no, we'll have to we'll have to wrap it up. It's 59. Uh, uh, so we'll have to call it there. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Barbara. We'll hopefully we'll get the, specifically somebody who's uh, uh, very well versed, particularly in this topic, uh, hopefully an Aboriginal lawyer to uh, delve deeper 
uh, in the future. But thank you very much for at least providing a stopgap because you did a much better job of explaining that Stefan and I could have on our own. So thank you very much. Uh, a job at all, I a think, job is the at answer. All. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Uh, we're simply here to pass on these great people to you um, and provide some entertainment. So uh, that's it for the Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening. Of course, the bonus uh, show will be following. So uh, we're going to be talking about, or I have essentially a little diatribe about what's going on with Anthony Scaramucci, the new uh, communications director, and how this there is a much larger thing, a story, and a much larger narrative we can be drawing from that. Uh, with that, that's the Green Majority. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, take care. Have a good Green Week. <laughs>